There are people, and now you, some of you might think I'm lying about this, there are people who don't actually enjoy everything about Christmas. Uh, but it's not because of Christmas, generally, it's just because life is hard. Sometimes difficult things happen um, in life. And at Christmas, we tend to be more reflective uh, than we are at other times of year. And uh, so, you know, for some people, that can, that can drag some of those things back out into the light. Uh, if that's you, um, or if you know someone who fits that category, I just, I just want to share this encouragement with you, and I hope that you'll put it to work in your life and use it to encourage someone else. The whole point of the Christmas story is that God has made a way to redeem the brokenness of the past. That's what the Christmas story is, in essence, about. Um, as much as I, you know, I love all the other stuff around it, all the celebrating and all of that, the Christmas story is about the fact that God has made a way to redeem the brokenness of the past. And if you know the story, you might remember there's this scene where there's some shepherds, uh, they're out in their field, and the angel comes to them, and he says, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. All people includes you. Christmas is about God redeeming the brokenness of the past, and that's, that's good news for you. So don't be afraid of the reflection. Don't be afraid to look back at it, because you know what? The brokenness is part of reconciliation. Uh, reflecting on our past is part of God's redemptive process in our lives. And so hopefully we're going to do a little bit of that uh, this week and over the next few weeks. Um, I, uh, what if I could tell you that this was your last Christmas? Now, just to be clear, I'm not telling you this is your last Christmas. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, what if I could somehow prognosticate with, with certainty that this was your last Christmas, um, that the end was nigh for you, so to speak? If that was the case, if I could do that, if you knew with certainty that this was your last Christmas, one of the things I guarantee you would do automatically without even trying is you would reflect on your past. You'd reflect on the good times and the bad times. Uh, You'd reflect on the successes and the failures. You'd reflect on the people who influenced you for better or for worse. Automatically, without trying, we would reflect on all of our lives. It's inherent. We do it automatically. The reason is because God has wired us for that, and it's one of his best tools for teaching us, for helping us grow. Um, How many of you ever, as a kid, maybe stuck your hand on a burner or on a hot pan, uh, and you knew not to do that again in the future, right? Uh, that's, That's one of God's best mechanisms for teaching us. Sometimes we hear people say things like, I just felt like God was telling me, and we're, we nod in approval, but in the back of our mind, we're like, God doesn't speak to me like that. Um, this is one of the ways that God teaches us, through reflection, just by looking in the, in the mirror. I thought about setting that mirror up so that you would have to look at yourselves the entire time, but, um, but I decided not to, not to do, with that, do that to you. It's through this reflection that we sometimes learn things that we didn't see the first time around. So I just want to give you an example of this. We're going we're gonna to try this. I have a picture for you. Now, just take a good look at that picture. Wouldn't you rather be where those people are than where we currently are here in the uh, snow? They're just having this serene moment where all is right with the world. Everything's good. Did anybody see the baby in the picture? Anybody see it? Yeah? Let me, let me, let me help a few of you out. Maybe we'll go to the next one real quick. Uh, you see the baby in the picture? Now, let's, let's go back to the other one real quick. Let's go back to the last picture. You can't unsee the baby now, right? Once you know it's there, you can't unsee it. Well, this is how it works when we reflect on the past. 
Once we learn a lesson from our experiences, we don't, we don't unlearn it. Sometimes we're dumb enough to make the same mistake again, but that just reiterates the lesson. Once we reflect on our past and we learn from it, we don't unlearn the lesson because careful reflection produces some really useful and lasting insights in our lives. So I want to encourage you to learn how to slow down, learn how to reflect, because once you do, you're going to see some things that you haven't done before. And this is one of the ways, one of God's primary ways that he teaches us is by reflection on our own life, reflection on the scriptures, uh, reflection on other people's experiences, all kinds of ways. Now, I got to be straight with you about this reflection. There are things in your past, it's true for me too, there are things in your past that you haven't yet seen for what they are. And I know that because there's things in my present that I'm not yet seeing for what they are. Here's the way life works. It's one of the greatest ironies of life is that the most significant things in our life are understood most clearly when we reflect back on them. And yet, the irony is we have to live life moving forward. A lot of the really big things, the significant things in our lives, we actually don't understand them until after they're behind us. Behind us. Sometimes they have to be way behind us for us to really get perspective and, and clarity on them. But that's how life works. It's best understood when we look backwards. Now, you might have picked up on this or not uh, already. When we start to talk about the past, we're sort of trending away from the shallow water. Uh, we're we're going to head toward, for a few minutes, what might be, for some of you, some pretty deep water. Uh, I want to encourage you, don't be afraid of the water just because it's deep. Um, it's deep and it's significant for a reason. Uh, the most important things can be found there, and God wants to teach us in this way, reflection on our past. All of us have one. You have a past. I have a past. And essentially, your past is going to do two, one of two things for you. It's either going to provide a foundation of strength and encouragement and wisdom, or it's going to provide a foundation of shame, regret, discouragement. A guy I love to study named Cal Jernigan, he made this statement about the past. He said, your past is either lifting you up or it's holding you down. In just about any given situation, I think that's true. So let me ask you this question just for reflection. Where's home for you? How'd you, how'd you get here? Uh, you know, I, not necessarily a place, but, but where are you from? You know, your past is your story. It's who you are. It's how you arrived here. Where are you from? Where are your roots? Where's home for you? When you think of home, is it a place you long for? Or is it a place that you're thinking, man, I'm glad I'm not there anymore? Is it a place you'd rather avoid? When you reflect on your past, I know when I do this, I have all kinds of different emotions, but what's your prevailing emotion when you just, in general, think about your past? Which one of those is your emoji when you think about your, uh, your past? I'm definitely the guy in the upper right. You ever have a situation happen and you're just like, did that really happen or did I imagine that? Did anyone else, did anyone else see that? Sometimes I look back and that's how I feel about the last 15 years. Did that just happen or am I on a hidden camera show? Uh, What's your prevailing emotion when you think back about your past? Whether it's bad or it's good, let me ask you this. What's the part of your past that you'd like to just close the door on and never visit again? What's the part of your past that's in the past and you just assume it stayed there and you never had to think of it ever again? 
maybe the mullet stage for some of you. Uh, pretty sure there's a picture somewhere of my wife with a side ponytail and a hypercolor t-shirt. Uh, for those of you who remember the late 80s, early 90s, um, disco and leisure suits. Okay, I don't mean styles, right? That's not what I, I mean. What's the part of your past? What's the part that for you, when you think of it, you're like, ugh, you just sort of makes you shiver a little bit. You just, you just want to leave it back there. I mentioned we were headed for the deep water, right? Did I, did I give full disclosure on that? Um, what I want to do is I want to just give you a few... Uh, kind of the cliff notes on a few stories from the Bible that, uh, that I think are going to be really helpful to us in terms of processing our past. But here's the big idea that I want you to keep in mind when we run through these, okay? Until you embrace forgiveness for your past, you're going to remain a slave to it. Until we embrace forgiveness, our past is going to hold on to us. Now, that might be forgiveness for something someone else did or didn't do, Uh, an expectation that someone else didn't meet in your life, a sorrow that someone else caused you, or, you know what, it might even be forgiveness for yourself. Uh, Maybe you need to receive and give forgiveness to yourself. It could go either way. The overwhelming majority of our sorrows from the past would probably fit into one of those two categories, either something someone else did, and, and if that's the case, I don't need to like give you a hypothetical example. You know exactly who it is and where it happened and, or what expectation wasn't met. You already know. Or it's something that we did. Not usually one bad choice. Most of the time, it's sort of a slippery slope of bad choices. Uh, but until we embrace forgiveness, we'll remain in slavery to our past. And so, um, so I want to go there just for, just for a few, few minutes. But let me ask you this really pointed question. Uh, might even be a little bit of an offense to you, okay? I think most of you probably agree with the idea that until we embrace forgiveness from our past, uh, we'll be in bondage to it. That's not a hard sell. I think most people can get on board with that. The question I got to ask myself that's a more difficult question is, when's that going to happen? When, when am I going to actually do that? You know, you know what I mean? When am I going to get around to actually you know, taking action on forgiving myself or forgiving that person? When, when will I actually let go? When's that, when's that going to happen? Now, that's a tough question. I'm only asking the question because I want that for you. I want that for myself. That's not easy. That, that makes probably a lot of us just a little bit uncomfortable, but maybe today's the day for me to leave the prison cell. And I'm telling you that forgiveness is the key to open that door. That's a very real possibility. A brilliant guy, much smarter than me, you can kind of take his word for it, named Oswald Chambers. Uh, He died about 100 years ago, actually last month. Uh, This is what he said to, uh, to this end. He said, beware of spending too much time looking back at what you once were when God wants you to become something that you've never been. God's trying to make you into something new, but but." If all we can do is focus on what's behind us rather than reflecting on it and learning from it and then moving forward, we can't move forward into what God wants us to become. So here's the cliff notes on three people. Uh, The first one is a guy named Moses. Moses, pretty well-known figure in the Bible. He comes on the scene really early in the biblical narrative. 66 books in the Bible. First one is... Okay, good, good. We're halfway home already. I tell everybody all the time, Center Church is a really smart church. Uh, second book of the Bible is... Okay, good. I was, I was hoping there wouldn't be crickets for that one. 
Exodus chapter 2. So we're pretty early in the biblical narrative still. Moses comes on the scene. And he's born at a time when the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt. Egypt was the most powerful nation in the known world at that time. And Moses' people have been slaves for generations. The Hebrews have been slaves for a long time. So the pharaoh of Egypt all of a sudden has this thought. Uh, these, these Hebrews, you know, they live under our thumb, but they keep multiplying, and there's more and more and more of them. What's going to happen when eventually there's more of them than us, and they decide we've had enough? So he takes action on this. He wants to make sure and keep them oppressed, keep them under his rule. So he sets off to essentially exterminate an entire generation of Hebrew males. And he orders that all of the, all of the male babies of the Hebrews be, be killed. So Moses' mom, uh, she decides to take some action. And she takes a basket and sort of waterproofs it with some uh, like tree sap. Uh, and he, she puts Moses in it and floats him down the river. Now, I know, but can you imagine, like, if those are your two choices, uh, certain death or putting him in the river and hoping that something works out, but, you know, it beats the alternative. So that's what she does, hoping that someone will find him. And as it turns out, Pharaoh's daughter is the person who finds him floating out there. Uh, now, you know, we think of our household, I don't know how many, how many people are in your household, but it's probably somewhere between like, you know, one and maybe six, seven, eight people, something like that. Pharaoh's household probably had hundreds and hundreds of people. So he could have had this daughter that he had very little interaction with, even though they lived in the same, in the same palace. Uh, but she finds him and she says, hey, can I keep him? Uh, like a pet, I guess. And, uh, but he says, yes. So Moses grows up with this charmed life in the palace. Uh, what, a, what a crazy thing. It's almost like there was a sovereign God of the universe controlling the sequence of events. I mean, it's almost like that. So Moses grows up in the palace, but, but he knows he's Hebrew. I mean, they're aware of it. You know, she knows she found this Hebrew baby, and now he's living in their, their household. And one day, Moses has this really defining moment in his life. And, uh, and it's recorded for us uh, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. This is what it says. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people, the Hebrews, w- to where they were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. God bless you. So in this moment of impulse, Moses does something really out of character. You ever done anything out of character in the moment? Probably not. That's for other people. Uh, Good thing he checked to make sure nobody was looking, though, right? The next verse says, The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one who was in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh Uh-oh. Then Moses was afraid, and he thought, what I did must have become known. And Moses thinks to himself, if this guy knows, pretty soon everybody's going to know. And he was right. The fear and the anxiety set in immediately in Moses' Moses' life. He knows my secret's out. I'm in trouble. And watch what happens in the next verse. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. 
Moses' past caused him to go into hiding, to try and bury it behind him. So he heads out to a place called Midian. Midian is in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's like, it might as well be Colville. No, I'm just kidding. It's worse than that. It's, it's, in, it's desert wilderness is what Midian is. And, uh, and he ends up spending years just hiding there, hoping that no one will ever find him and that his past will ever come back and, and bite him, become a problem again. And as I read Moses' story, one question comes to mind when I'm thinking about that. Is hiding from the past really worth exiling myself in the desert? Like, is the pain of dealing with the past really worse than just living in that kind of isolation in the desert? Apparently, Moses felt like it probably was, but that's a good question for us to ask. Is dealing with this situation that's following me, that discouragement, whatever someone said that hurt me, uh, whatever that mistake was that I made, is dealing with that really worse than the weight of just isolating myself and carrying it around? So that's Moses. What about David? You remember David? David and Goliath, most well-known, probably one of the most well-known characters in the Bible, maybe other than Jesus. Um, I my favorite uh, all-time Super Bowl commercial, David's the subject, David and Goliath, he throws the rock, and then the wall, rock falls on the ground, has a little Wilson logo on it. Anybody remember that, uh, that Super Bowl commercial? Uh, David comes to visit his brothers who are in the Hebrew army. And of course, if you know the story, you know they're all hiding from this huge guy named Goliath who's basically saying, hey, send somebody out here to fight me. And he's mocking them because they're all afraid to come out and fight them. And then he takes it and makes it really personal. You know, he's mocking them as cowards, which apparently they are because they're afraid of him. But then he starts to mock them as a people and their belief system and their God. And here's David, who's basically a junior higher at this point. And he's like, it's not okay with me. If you guys aren't going to do something about it, I'm going to go do something about it. And he goes and and he challenges Goliath and he wins. Uh, You probably know the story or uh, at least tidbits of it. And he wins, and the people love David. So much so that eventually they replace their king Saul with a new king, and it's David. There was a very famous song at the time, uh, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. We should write a jingle sometime, because in my head it sounds like a really dumb song. So maybe you can come come up with something better. Uh, But David becomes Israel's greatest king. That's what he goes on to become. Well, one night he's in his palace, um, and he's asleep, and and it says that it's in the springtime and his armies are out to war. They're out to battle. They're not, they're not here at the palace. And he goes out uh, on the rooftop at night at the palace and he sees, as he's looking out, he sees this woman bathing. So he tells one of his attendants, he says, hey, go, uh, go find out what her, what her deal is. And, uh, and the, the servant comes back and says, hey, that's Uriah's wife. Uriah is one of your officials in your, in your army. And uh, David's like, oh, okay, well, go get her and tell her to come back. And the messenger's like, no, you don't understand. That's Uriah's wife. And he's like, yeah, I heard that. Go, go get her and tell her to come back. So he brings her back, and she stays there with David. And lo and behold, a short time later, they find out she's pregnant. David's got a problem on his hands because that's Uriah's wife. And Uriah's gone. Everybody's going to know what his mistake was. Uriah hasn't been there. He's not around. So his plan is he sends for Uriah. Come home, come, you know, come hang out with your wife, take a little, little R&R. 
And if you know the story, you know, of course, Uriah is just incredibly honorable. He says, no, my men are still out there in battle. I'm not going home to my wife until they come home to theirs. I like Uriah. Uriah seems like a pretty good guy. David, not so much. He's, he's not happy with Uriah's honor. So what he does, he, he gets him drunk and then sends him home. Well, Uriah ends up sleeping in the yard because he doesn't want to go home until his men get to come home. So now David's, David's in a pinch. And uh, he finally decides, after looking this way and that, making sure nobody's looking, that he's going to write a letter to a guy named Joab, who's in his army. And he gives the letter to Uriah, and he says, I want you to take this letter to Joab. In 2 Samuel eleven fourteen, it records what happens. It says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Okay, so here's an honest question for you. How do you feel about David right now? I mean, if that's all you know about David, David's dirtbag, right? I honestly, if I'm just honest about this, I can't think of anything David could possibly do at this point that would be more offensive to me. I'm as offended with David as I could possibly be at this stage. So this is, our, this is David. Uriah goes out and he delivers the letter. And then shortly thereafter, Uriah is dead. It plays out just the, way, just the way David intended. And he thinks that he's taken the problem and buried it. That's close, right? Now I can just take Bathsheba into my household and take care of her and everything will be fine. And this child will just grow up in the palace and everything will be great. And he thinks he's buried his past deep enough that no one will ever find out except for a guy named Nathan who, with the help of God later on, figures out what happened and he confronts David with it. And then David has to deal with that. So that's David. One, one more story. In the New Testament, this is just after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. You have this, uh, you have this small church, this group of Christians. It's beginning to grow uh, because at this point, uh, many people have seen the resurrected Jesus. Oh my goodness, he's the real thing. Like we, we believe what he was saying. And so the church is beginning to grow. But you also have this other group of Jews who are very much opposed to it. And they've committed themselves to squashing the church, to stamping out this message. And the leader of that group was a guy named Saul, who later on became known as Paul, as some of you know. In Acts chapter 7, there's this story where a guy named Stephen is having interaction with this group of Jews, and he's explaining to them how they were wrong. Um, Now, my experience has been that people who are religiously arrogant and lack self-awareness generally don't respond favorably to being told they're wrong, and that's exactly what happens right here. Stephen is explaining to them, and he's using their own scriptures, how he's explaining to them how they missed it, how Jesus actually is the Messiah that you've been waiting for, for all these thousands of years. And not only did you miss it, but oh, by the way, you killed him. And uh, so they do exactly what you would expect them to do. They get into an uproar, they drag him out of the city, city and literally throw rocks at him until he's dead. That's, that's how it plays out. Acts chapter 7, verse 57 says this. At this, after hearing what Stephen said, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
Saul standing right there in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, just the next verse says, and Saul approved of their killing Stephen. Saul says, yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Let's stamp this thing out. Let's take care of business. Acts 2 says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except for the apostles, just the, just the few, Jesus' closest followers, Everyone else was scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And godly men buried Stephen and mourned for him deeply. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison, which in their day was the precursor to execution. Saul, at this point, has dedicated his life to stamping out the church. And he's killing people in order to do it. That's his life's work. That's what he's most committed to. That's his plan. And it might have worked, except for later on, he was going to be confronted about his actions, and he was going to have to deal with that. And he eventually has a, has a change of heart. But what's interesting is, as he has a change of heart, and he goes about not trying to stamp out the gospel, but trying to spread the gospel, his past ends up making that a lot harder, ends up making it a lot more difficult. So that's Saul. You have Moses, you have David, you have Saul. I told you, I gave you the cliff notes on those. I told you those three stories just so that I could point out two common threads between all three of those. Three commonalities, two commonalities for all three of them. The first one I think is fairly obvious. They're all murderers. Now I know you, you know that because you just heard the story, but like, just let that sink in for just a second. Okay? Uh, if at some point in this message I said... Oh, by the way, I murdered some people. How many of you are coming back next week? Uh-huh. Pastor Rick's like, mm, maybe. Uh, probably none of you, I'm guessing, right? Because just think about the offensive nature of that. All three of these guys are murderers. And it's not like there was just cause or self-defense. I mean, Moses saw something happening, and he essentially said, I don't like what you're doing, so I'm going to kill you and hide your body. And then you think about David's situation with Uriah. You're a problem for me, so I'm going to take your life. And then Paul said, Paul's, in my opinion, probably the worst because the only thing he doesn't like about these people, he just doesn't agree with what they're saying. So what does he do? He starts killing them for it. Like, that's, that's pretty offensive, in my opinion. So that's the first thing that they all have in common. The second thing that they all have in common is that other than Jesus, you, you have to get this part now, other than Jesus... These are the, mo- the three most significant figures in God's plan for redemption and reconciliation. There are no bigger names in the Bible. How do you, how you marry those two things? How do you reconcile those two things? Well, all three of them had to deal with their past. But the good news about that is God was ready to deal with their past. You know what one of the most beautiful things about the gospel is? It's that because of Jesus... God keeps no record of your sin. You get that? Like the idea that God would would cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. He literally keeps no record of the things you have done wrong. That's incredibly good news uh, if you're like me because that's a pretty long list. I'm keeping record, trying not to, but, but he keeps no record of your sin. That's who God is. Each of these guys had to deal with their past, though. Each of them had to come to a place of confession. Each of them had to give to a place where 
they were ready to forgive themselves for their sin so that God could use them. They were ready to receive God's forgiveness for their sin. They tried to run. They tried to hide. They tried to distance themselves. But here's the thing about your past. For better or worse, your past will always be your past. Your past is your story. It's where you came from. It's how you got here. The question about your past is, is it tragedy or is it comeback story? The choice is really, is really up to you. It can be a story about defeat or it can be a story about redemption. Through Jesus, all of us have that opportunity to make it about redemption. I love what Oswald Chambers said about that. Now, for a few of us, we have, have things, have heavy weights that we're carrying. And this is, this is his advice to you. He says, leave the broken past with God. Just leave it with him. Press on towards what he called an invincible future with God. Don't be afraid to leave your past with him and step into an invincible future with him. Because remember what I said at the beginning. The whole point of the Christmas story, the whole point is that God went to the most unbelievable measures to reconcile the brokenness of the past. And it's not just good news for the shepherds or good news for the people who turn it all around and, you know, polish themselves up. It's good news for all people. It's for you. So I have this illustration. I don't know if it's a good one or not, but it's the simplest terms that I can think of. Everybody knows what this is, right? Hopefully, if uh, you have a driver's license, you've been known to use this on occasion. Try not to shine the light in your face. Uh, what's this for? This is, this is really useful for glancing up at to see what's behind me, gaining some information about what's behind me, learning what's back there. But what's going to happen if I'm driving forward and I'm staring at this? If I'm trying to go forward, but I'm looking behind me the entire time, I'm going to crash and burn, obviously. That's, that's the inevitable reality. But here's the point I would make that's even bigger than that. And that is that when I'm looking at this, I'm completely oblivious to what's in front of me. I'm only seeing what's behind me. Living life in the rear view will keep you in the past, will keep us there, will be stuck there. And I think really I just want to share one big idea with you on this. And that's basically basically this, that God is giving you permission to let go. There might be a huge weight. I mean, somebody may have hurt you in a really significant way. Someone... They have, it could be as significant as an abuse. It could just be something someone said that just wiped out your confidence. You just no longer believe in yourself. You have permission from God to let that go. It could be a betrayal that hurts just as much today as it did years ago when it happened. You have God's permission to let go. You have permission to let go. And you might be thinking, you know what? I just can't do that on my own. But isn't that what faith is for? Isn't, isn't that what faith is for so that we can say, you know what, God, I, I know I can't do this, but I trust that you can. And he's saying, you, you have permission to let go. It's okay. And it might have been a decision that you made a long time ago. And you might even be thinking to yourself, you know what, that was a huge screw up and I kind of deserve what I'm getting. The truth is, 
Yeah, probably, but Jesus already paid the bill. And you have permission to let that go. You have, you have God's permission to let that go. I love what Paul said in his letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15. He said, Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, that Christ Jesus died to save sinners of whom I am the worst. You know what he says in the next verse? He says, God did this so that through me, the worst of sinners, the example would be set that forgiveness is for everybody. So I'm going to ask you to do this with me. Would you stand up really quick? We're going we're gonna to end. We're going uh, to go home and crush some nachos or whatever it is that you do on Sunday afternoon. But I think there's going to be essentially three different responses right now that's going to happen. Uh, some people will say, well, that's cool. That's for somebody else and then make no application. Um, some people will say, I do probably need to forgive somebody. Maybe that's me. Maybe that's somebody else. But I'm just, I'm just not ready to do that yet. I'm not ready to let go. But somebody's going to say, I do need to forgive somebody. And I'm going to do it right now. And to you, I say, welcome to eternal freedom. That thing might try to come back, but you are free. So I want to pray for you right now. God, thank you that you have already declared our freedom. You've already won it. You've already paid the bill in full. God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the grace for ourselves to embrace forgiveness. I pray that you'd give us the courage and the grace for ourselves and others to give forgiveness, Lord. God, I pray that in this moment, the weight would fall off. God, that we could walk forward in forgiveness with that burden just lightened because you have paid the bill for us. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are everything we need. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, one last exercise. This whole conversation about freedom, you know, being able to let go of offense, being able to let go of the shame that attaches it to ourselves when we make mistakes. I want to test your knowledge on something. John chapter 8, verse 36 says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. It's a done deal. Jesus has made you free. You are free. The only thing that's going to that's gonna bring you back into captivity is that little voice in your head that wants to lie to you. You're free because of Christ. God has no record of your sins.